Actually, you don't have to turn anywhere in your Bibles right now. Eventually, we'll get to Romans 12, but it's going to take us a while. Um, I am breaking away from, from Luke for a week because sometimes it's necessary to, to break away from series to address special topics with the con- congregation. And today is, is, is such a day. Um, there, um, I'll, I'll just say church life has been difficult for the last two and a half years. To say that statement, is a, it, it's a vast understatement. Um, how difficult church life has been. And I'm not talking about just our church. I'm talking about every church. Multiple um, articles have appeared recounting the number of pastors that are leaving the ministry at this point because of unrest in congregations and and the culture seeping into congregations. As a matter of fact, just this week, foxnews.com had such an article. I think it was on Wednesday of this week they had that article uh, on their website. And our, our church has, has weathered some very difficult times, probably beginning with the death of the previous pastor, uh, with, with Howie's death, right? And it's, it, that was a very difficult time. And it's, it's continued up until the, the current uh, day and time. Things got ramped up for everyone, all churches, including our own, when COVID started. And... The elders have, have noticed a, a, a reoccurring pattern of the same issues coming up over and over over the last few years. And so I, I kind of want to address some of those and just let's just get to the root. So what we're doing today is basically Christianity 101. We're going to go back to the basics and just think about some things for a little bit. And so I'm going to pose a question. And, and here's my question. If, if, if I were to ask you, what is the default way that people relate to their self and to others, what would you say that is? What is the default way? Now, I realize, A, this is not a very clear question, and B, I'm doing what every teacher was taught not to do. I'm fishing for an answer, right? Um, and I have one of mine. And the answer is, according to scripture and according to just our own experience that it's it the problem is love too much love for self and not enough love for others every human being born into this world does not have to tell themselves to love them does not have to be told to love themselves because we already do problem is that we love ourselves too much yet the greatest way the end and well let me back up just a second does the bible say this as a matter of fact the bible does say this and one of the greatest ways that the bible tells us this is there is a constant call for people to love one another so we'll just run through some verses and you're gonna the reason i told you not to turn anywhere is we are going all over the Bible today, and so this is this, there's going to be a lot of scripture. It's just easier for you to read them with me. For example, John chapter 15, verse number 17. These things I command you, so that you what you love one another. So he Christ is commanding, uh, uh, he's teaching the disciples in John 15, which is the famous vine and branches passage, and he says, "You love one another." 
then go, uh, go to 1 John 3.11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. And so here a test of your salvation is whether you love other believers. And this is one of the, the, the most marked characteristics of myself before I was saved is I didn't like being around Christians. And after I was saved, I love being around Christians. They're, they're my people. And I, and I love them, right? And so this is 1 John chapter 3, verse number 11. Verse number 14 says, We know, um, I skipped it, didn't I? We know that we have passed out of life out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Did I just? And this is the commandment that we we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as He has commanded us. So here we see that loving others—that's a command. Now, if it's a command, what can we pull from that? One, it's not natural, right? Two, it's, it's possible. So it's possible that I can love Steelers fans. And it's possible y'all can love me being a Cowboys fan, right? Um, all right, we'll move on. 1 John 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Notice there's a, there's a pattern going on here. How do you know that what is the characteristic of a person who loves? They're a believer. Do you notice how often this has been brought up? 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, here it is again, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word perfected there doesn't mean perfect. It means complete. It's, it's completed in us. And then we have, then we switch back. And there's something going on in 1 John if you study the pattern. It's the indicative imperative. You, do you know what that is? In other words, the Bible says, if you're in Christ, you love. And then it turns around and says, but love one another. And that's the next passage in verse number 21 of chapter 4. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there it is. There's the command. You know, God's easy to love, isn't he? Y'all, not so much, or me, not so much. It just, it's just the way it is. One more verse, 2 John chapter 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. There it is again. There's another commandment. Now, I could have listed a whole lot more from the writings of John. One observation I want to make about the gospel and the epistles of John, and, and this is under some debate, but in general, they believe that he wrote this late, either in the late um, 80s or 90s AD. If so, then he's had a good half century of Christian church life. And so he writes about love a lot because he's observing that Christians don't naturally love one another the way they should. And I know what you're thinking, well, that's John. John's always talking about love. What about Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, 
you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the second table of the law, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to fulfill the law of Christ, then um, love God and love your neighbor. It's that simple, right? That's, that's, what, that's what Paul is saying there. 2 Corinthians 8, in verse number 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Okay? Galatians 5, verse number 14 here he says it again, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he keeps talking about the law. Ephesians, that great book that just, he unpacks our salvation and, and the glories of our salvation. His application, remember the first three chapters of Ephesians are the doctrine, teaching what our salvation is. Chapter 4, verse number 1, is a transitional statement Therefore, and notice verse number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, what? Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. That's the second verse of application of the doctrine of salvation for Paul. And then you have uh, chapter five in verse number two. And walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for love. Now, I'll have mercy. I'll stop there. But, but quite literally, the whole New Testament is full of love. What's interesting I was thinking about is that every epistle in the New Testament is, is writing about a different problem in the church. In almost every single one, there's a command in there to love. And the reason that's there is because the lack of love comes out in different ways in different churches. And that, that's, a, that's, that's a, a telling remark. This is only a small portion of the, the verses of believers to love. And I think we can safely assume that one of the hardest commands to follow is to love one another. Isn't it? Sure, it's, it's easy to have affection for people that are like us. But we have a hard time with that guy that believes different from me. And there's a big difference between God and us. Uh, I, I've gone to some very large conferences, pastors conferences and, and such, and sometimes with as many as 15,000 pastors. I've been to con very, very large conferences. What was fascinating about the conference is we are all praising God, singing the glories of the gospel, right? And um, I look around and I saw people who were, Pado-Baptist, you know, that means child baptizers. Um, there were Arminians there, Calvinists there. There were pre-mill, pre-trib, post-mill, all-mill, and the pan-millennialists who said it'll all pan out in the end. And, and I'm quite certain that many of them were are currently deep into social justice now but here's the thing god saved them just like he did you and me and he loves them just like he does you and me 
But at some level at that conference, all of those guys, all of us at conferences would look at someone and say, that dude's wrong. He's, he's totally wrong. And it leads you to the conclusion that we all must remember we're all wrong somehow, some way in the way that we believe about God. But God still loves us. And we, as, as church members, oftentimes have a hard time showing love to someone in our own congregation with only the slightest difference in belief. All right? It's true. It's true. So let me ask another question. And this is an important question. To what, what extent are we to, to love? Well, the verse that uh, right here just answers it, right? We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Um, another verse, John 13, 34. Now, the three verses I'm about to read now are in Jesus' last night. A lot of it is in the upper room. And so he's giving final instructions to the disciples. So here he is in the upper room, and he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In uh, verse number 15, I, I already read this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In the upper room, right before he's crucified. Now he's driving at home because they're going to see the act of love in just a few hours. Verse chapter 17 Right in the middle of his high priestly prayer, he says, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that love, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so here is Christ's prayer that we, because he goes on to talk about future believers, that we love one another as, as God did. You know, God's love is so great that he loves his enemies. We, we oftentimes don't think about how profound that is. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Now, there's a hard one, isn't it? Love your enemies? Yeah, that's really hard. Um, but this, is, this is more, when you think about this verse... When you think about this verse, this is more than just loving some enemy out there in the ethereal world. He is literally describing us at one time, isn't he? He is. Because before salvation, we were God's enemy. This is how Paul described us. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, in, once, in which you once lived, walked according to, I'm sorry, and walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's, that's a really flattering description. What if you go home and tell your wife that? She's not going to like that very well, right? But look at the very next verse. But God, being rich in mercy and what? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And so God loved his enemies, he loved us, and in his mercy he gave you and me eternal life. What a wonderful truth that is. 
God loves his enemies and we're his enemies. Now, what we like to do in our Christian lives a lot of times is we like to focus on secondary truths of Scripture at the expense of primary truths. And, and this is what I mean. There is a buzzword, and I don't know that I've mentioned this from the pulpit. I've mentioned this privately to people, but I don't think I've mentioned this one from the pulpit. The buzzword right now in Christianity is broken. Every song is about broken. Everybody walks around saying, I'm a broken person. And, and that is true. We are broken, aren't we? Some of us are more broke than others. I like to have a little, I'm not talking about that kind of broke, but we're, we're broken. But we're broken because we are sinners. That's the cause. Brokenness is the effect. The cause of brokenness is sin. The effect is brokenness. And here is, is the issue with, with emphasizing brokenness. When you emphasize brokenness, it turns us into victims that Jesus rescued in reality, um, when in reality we were enemies, right? Salvation is magnificent, not because he saved us like some little bird with a broken wing, but because he loved his enemies. That's the magnificence of the gospel. He loved his enemies so much that he was willing to go down to earth, go down and humble himself and die on the cross for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and take us from uh, the guilty verdict to the not guilty verdict, right? And give us the robes of righteousness and yes, right now we are broken because of our sin, but one day when we get to glory, we will no longer be broken. But the primary way that we relate to God is guilty sinners. All the, the picture of sin all through the Bible is guilt, not brokenness. Not brokenness. And so um, uh, we, we, we need to remember that. And this is, this is true, like in, in Romans chapter number 5, it says, but God shows his love for us, in the while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? But here, two verses later, not only are we sinners, but he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So here it is. Christ's death reconciled his enemies to God. God's love is not only shown in the way he treats his enemies, it's shown in his patience. God's love is seen in his patience. Jeremiah recounts the patience of God towards a rebellious nation when he says, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, now that was about 1450 B.C., okay, uh, to this day, which is about 700 and something B.C., maybe, maybe um, well, anyway, we'll leave it at that, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And so here God is saying, here is a rebellious house, one that I saved from Egypt, one that I blessed, and they're rebelling against me, yet in love, that's implied here in love. I'm sending my prophets wanting them to repent, right? At the very end of Second Chronicles, if you read Second Chronicles 
was written sometime after the exile, or maybe even during the exile, most likely after. Um, Second Chronicles, the author summarizes the patience of God over hundreds of years by saying, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. And here the compassion is he's sending the prophets, wanting them to repent so that they will return to him and once again receive the blessings of God on their life. And so God is patient toward people. He's so patient that he endured sin and rebellion and idolatry on a massive scale for hundreds of years. He prospered Israel. He protected Israel. And he showed love to them. And I could go on about the love of God, but I think you get the point, don't you? So let's, let's just make uh, some application. How do we apply this to us? And this is where we go to Romans chapter 12 and verse number 10. Let's look at this together. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard because I think it captures the essence a little bit better. It says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And so one of the applications of the love of God is that we are to devote ourselves to love people. It's, it's, it's an, an energy. There is energy involved in loving other people. And everything that we do should be infused with love. Be devoted to love. Be devoted to one another in love. The idea is here, by the way, this devotion, the word uh, love is, and devoted are the same cognates. And it's, it has to do with the word phileo, which means brotherly love. It's, it has to do with the natural love that families have for each other. Now, families love each other, don't they? I mean, you, you think about the love. Even, even a brother and sister who, who fight all the time. I've seen this before when I was a kid. They fight all the time. But if somebody picks on my sister, man, you better watch out, right? Families naturally love one another. Now, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 7. This is an extremely important verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 7. He's, Paul is talking, that's the love chapter. Everybody knows that. And he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I want to focus on the little phrase for just a second. Love believes all things. Another way of saying this is that love thinks the best of other Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that love is naive. That's not what it's saying at all. It thinks the best. It means that when you love another Christian, you will think the best about them until proven otherwise. Here, here's what one commentator said about this, this part of the verse. If there is a doubt about a person's guilt or motivation, love will always opt for the most favorable possibility. If a loved one is accused of something wrong, love will consider him innocent until proven guilty. If he turns out to be guilty, now listen to this, if he turns out to be guilty, love will credit for the best motive. Love trusts, love has confidence. Now, how many can raise your hand and say, you perfectly followed that? Because I know I can't. I'm gonna, I'll just tell you right here. 
I have not followed that. And it, it grieves me that I find myself falling into that kind of a pattern where I don't think the best. And all of us are guilty of that, aren't we? We, we need to think the best. Even when somebody sins against us, don't, don't assign bad motives. It, it's so important. But humanity, we don't do that. Now, I want to show you an example of the opposite from the Old Testament. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Joshua 22. Joshua 22. This is a real fascinating little uh, passage of Scripture. Joshua 22. We're going to see the illustration of the opposite. Now, where are we? We are, Israel has just conquered the promised land. I don't know how well you can see this map. Probably not very well with these lights on. But I want to show you something about the settlement. This is a map of the settlement. This is the Dead Sea down here. There's the Sea of Galilee up here. Thank you for dimming the lights a little. Okay, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Right in the middle is the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs above the Sea of Galilee all the way to Mount Hermon. So it literally divides um, Israel. That's a fault line that runs all the way to the Great Rift Valley in Africa. If you've heard of the Rift Valley in Africa, same fault line. And it acts like a natural barrier between the two. When Israel settled, you had two and a half tribes that went east. You had the tribe of Gad, and you had Reuben. And then up here, you had half the tribe of Manasseh, is the way the Bible says it. Here it says East Manasseh. And so there's a natural division. And because they didn't, they didn't have bridges and everything like we did, naturally these people are going to, there's a tendency for these people to become detached from the rest of the, the congregation is what they would call the rest of their nation. Now look with me in Joshua 22 in verse number 10. Well, let me, let me say one more thing. Shiloh, the place where they worshiped, is over here on the west side. So these nations on the east side to go to Shiloh to worship was going to, it was going to be quite a trek. And so they came up with an idea, we are going to build an altar. And that's where we find verse number 10. And when they came to the region of Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, an altar of opposing, imposing size. This thing's big, and it's right beside the river, right? And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So notice what they did when they heard about it. Next verse. And when the people heard of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of people gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Doesn't that sound like humanity? We hear something and automatically we gather ourselves to make war. Well, what is the assumption? The assumption is they built this giant altar over there. What are they going to do? You know, they're going to worship. Isn't that, isn't that a logical assumption? Isn't that a natural assumption? It is. It sounds very logical to me. 
And so they get together, and uh, verse number 16, let's get down to verse number 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this, and now here's an accusation they make, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? They go on, but you see the point. Have you ever done that to somebody? That's what we, we do. We see something about somebody and we build a case. Oh man, I'm not even sure that person's saved. Man, listen to his motives. Listen to what he's doing. I know exactly why he's doing that. She's doing that. We do that, don't we? That's a natural way that we go. Well, look at what happened. Verse number 22. Here's the response from the tribes in the east. Verse 22 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in a breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us this day. That's a humble response, isn't it? For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben, the people of Gad, you have no portion in the land. So your children might take our, or make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice. Now that sounds like a pretty good explanation, doesn't it? It did. They explained why they did it. And what happened? It was peace. It was peace. They weren't going to practice idolatrous worship. They did it for an innocent reason. However, the most logical assumption was that they were going to practice idolatrous worship. But the logical, and this is important, the logical assumption is wrong. And in the same way, we must be very careful about assigning motives to people's words and actions. The elders see this repeated over and over and over in church life. It's been ongoing since the early days of COVID-19. Someone says something, their words are interpreted in the worst possible light. It's not even a medium interpretation, it's the worst interpretation. And an offense is taken. This is not love. Love dictates that we react in a better way. Maybe something like this. You know, Melvin said this. I tried to pick a name. I didn't know of anybody named Melvin here. Melvin said this, and it sounds offensive, but I know Melvin. So therefore, I'm sure he didn't mean it, so I'm going to go ask him. Wouldn't that be the best way to handle it? That's love. Look, don't automatically assign malicious intent to another believer's words or actions. I, I, I one, one time early in COVID-19, while we were still in lockdown, I sent out an email. And it, I was already receiving large volumes of email, so much so I, I couldn't. It was hard to perform what I needed to get done and answer email at the same time. I remember one time I sent out a church-wide email 
got a massive response from it. Just tons of responses. And I tried to answer everyone. Somehow I missed somebody's email. They got really upset. I don't care about them, and I ignored them and stuff like that. And they didn't stop to think that maybe I just missed their email. And, and, I, and to be honest with you, it makes me feel really bad. I, I try really hard. I'll say this. If there's a delay in responding to your email, it's not that I don't think you're important, okay? Um, it's on, there's two days a week where I block off large amounts of time to study and, and to write. And uh, if I didn't, I'd be stopping my study about every 15 minutes to answer an email. And it's just easier for me to do that. So please don't take offense at something like that. I, I care about you and I love you, okay? So, so we need to make sure that we think the best about others. But there's another thing about love. Love covers offenses. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you see that? That's not, that's not perceived offenses. That's actual sin. That's actual sin. I'll explain that in just a second. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. Conflicts abound, and it's to Satan's perverse delight that that happens. I never cease to be surprised at how small of offense cannot be overlooked. The smallest offense can't be overlooked. There doesn't even have to be an actual sin or offense, just a perception. Suddenly we have a major court case. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to just make a guess here. Since love covers a multitude of sins, this would be something like all of us have a bad day. And every now and then, we might respond to somebody in an irritable manner. Now, is that sin? It is, but that's not, your, that's not the normal way you act, right? And you know that, that that person is not normally like that. Overlook it. It doesn't need to be a court case. It doesn't need to be church discipline. Brother, you have a real spiritual problem going on. All of us have bad days. And, and I think that's what this verse is talking about. Let me give you something else. Love keeps matters close. The next verse is another common pattern that we see with people who cannot overlook an offense. Proverbs 17, verse number 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. You get offended, forget about it. Just seek love. Isn't that what it's saying? The loving response is not to take up an offense. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A person... Is, is offended and so they climb up on their judgment seat to pass judgment and the way that they pass judgment is in the form of telling other people. Then it gets repeated in a slightly different form which again gets repeated in a more twisted form and pretty soon, pardon my language here, what is being spread is an actual lie. Now the person is not lying necessarily but the, what's being said is a lie. This is something of what James is talking about in James chapter 3 and verse number 5. 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. One person, one person can do it with one little tongue. Can set a, uh, uh, well, let's read the next verse. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. In other words, people use their tongues and do the work that Satan loves. They're not purposely doing that, but when we use our tongues in the wrong way, it divides and it sets groups on fire. James continues in verse number 9, and here's, here's where it gets really complicated. With it, talking about our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's, that's the, um, I didn't get there, did I? What happened? Um, I'm hitting the right direction on the remote. Can you get to James 3.9 uh, for me? If you can't, I'll just read it. I'm just going to read it. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Just leave it there, that's fine. These things ought not to be so. We're made in the likeness of God. We bless God, and instead of blessing the ones made in His image, we curse them. And so the tongue just creates all kinds of, of problems. People bless the Lord in worship services, yet they repeat matters and in the end cause division. Think about how easily this can happen. Nobody does it intentionally, do they? Nobody sets out to cause division, but it's really easy to do. A person hears something about another person in church, instead of going to that person, they go to someone else. Hey, have you heard about Melvin? I wonder if it's true. Or, um, the, 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 when the person does that, by the way, they're spreading gossip. Another method makes somebody seem more spiritual. You know, have you heard about Melvin? I'm really concerned about him. And, and then you, you spiritualize it. That sounds good and spiritual, but it isn't biblical and it isn't love. So, love also seeks somebody else's well-being. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, 1 Corinthians 24, 10-24. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. That's a characteristic of love. Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but on the in, uh, to the interests of others. And so love seeks other people's well-being. I'll be honest with you, I was never so glad as when COVID began to fade. Oh, that was a blessing. For several months, the elders will, will attest to this, we heard about this is the reason why everybody should wear masks. And then we heard about this is the reason why nobody should wear masks. And if you cave into the mask wearers, you're just, you're just a bunch of wimps. Okay, you're people pleasers. Then it rolled into vaccinations. If people aren't vaccinated, they should wear a mask. If people aren't vaccinated, they don't love each other. And if, you know, if people are vaccinated, they're just a bunch of sheep. And here's the article I've got to prove it. 
And, and it was just a constant stream of that. In, in, in reality, what was going on? People want their way. They want to impose their beliefs on everybody else. I mean, we all want that, don't we? In one way or another. If I want my way, my belief would be get out of my way while I'm driving. <laughs> I want to remote control my car to move everybody out of the way. So I had a person, can I, can I run a rabbit trail? This morning I'm on my way to church. I'm going to run it anyway. And um, uh, there, there was, when I pulled out on 29, there was somebody in the right lane, so I get in the left lane. And pretty soon I kind of overtake them. You know how that does. But they're, they're one of the people that doesn't use their cruise control. And then the, the person that doesn't use a cruise control and unconsciously matches traffic. And so, so I'm driving, I get just ahead of them, and they say, just like this with me, all the way to the exit here. I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? This, I, I, I took my cruise and I went slow and I went fast and didn't matter what I did. They were that kind of person. So uh, I hope there's no police officers in here. I just stomped on it and finally got around them. And instead of slowing down, I could have put on my brakes. It's more fun to go speed, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so now we have a new opportunity to look out for the good of our neighbors, don't we? We're beginning two services. Now, all of us would rather have one service. I'd rather have one service. But this is an ideal time to be gracious in your opinions and show love that way. We can show love by serving others. I'm so thankful for the people that just jumped up and started doing the greeting. And I'm so thankful for or, or the welcome team and the greeters. And, and I'm so thankful for everybody that, that serves other people. You know, what if people decided to attend the first service so that they could serve others in the second service? Like the nursery and children's ministry, I'm thinking of, the, the ones that need the help. That would be a wonderful act of love, wouldn't it? Let me give you one last one. One last one, we're done. Love forgives. Love forgives. You know what Paul told the Colossian church? I just uh, finished Colossians this week in my morning reading. He said, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And so that, that's, if you have a complaint against another person, forgive. That's it. Sacrifice yourself and your rights. To what extent do we forgive? As the Lord has forgiven us, we must forgive. We must forgive. My desire for the church is in the next two verses. And above all these, put on love. And above all these, put on love. And what does love do? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Because Christ is in us, we can be ruled by the peace of Christ, can't we? Because Christ loved us, we can love others. Because Christ loved us, we can enjoy the blessing of harmony brought about by love. I've said before, this, this church is the most loving church I've ever attended. And let us just work to follow Scripture and just abound and devote ourselves in love to one another.
Lord, you know that this was not an easy message to deliver. It's a serious topic. It's, it's a direct topic. But, Lord, you're direct. And we have a, a wonderful congregation. But all of us confess that we have a hard time loving one another. And so my prayer continues to be the prayer that I read from Ephesians 3 during the prayer time this morning, that we will know the height and breadth and depth and know the love of God through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.